but how you would respond to strangers. If this was really out of your comfort zone. See, what's your response like to situations or people that make you uncomfortable? How do you respond to what seems unbelievable? What is your natural first instinct response to confrontation? How do you respond to competition? How do you respond to setbacks? How do you respond to failure, success, heartbreak? How do you respond to instruction or criticism? How do you respond to offers for help or prayer? Now, let's go back 21 centuries into the passage of John chapter 7, 1 through 13, and put yourself there in that first century and ask yourself, how would you respond if you lived in the first century? Because again, it's easy for us to be armchair quarterbacks. It's easy for us to read this and go, I can't believe these brothers. I can't believe this crowd. Well, how would you respond if you lived there? How would you think and act and respond to Jesus? You've been a good, religious, observing person. Your head's been down. You're working hard, hoping for something better for yourself or hoping something better for your family. And then Jesus comes. And you know he's just a man. But he's a different man. Jesus is a man of contrasts. He's popular one moment, hated the next. Rumors abound about him. Stories and fantastic stories are all spreading like wildfire around all the areas of Jerusalem. Stories about healings and miracles and things that he said. Do you remember what the people said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 4? No one had ever spoken like this because he spoke as one who had authority. And the crowds... Just back in John chapter 6, a crowd that could have been upwards to 20,000 human beings followed him around. And at times they loved on him, wanting to make him king, and then at other times they confronted him and wanted to kill him. If you really actually read it, you and I take some things for granted, but you've got to put yourself into the attitude of the people here because believe it or not, to the first century person, his birthplace was vague. Not everybody knew that he was born in Bethlehem and how. Most people knew that he was from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. His family background, well, let's be honest, it was less than desirable. If you know anything about first century, first century Nazareth, it was one of the poorest towns in all of Galilee. And it was right on the border of the Judea-Galilee area. It was dirt poor. How would you respond Honestly. You see, as we enter John chapter 7, we enter this new section of the gospel according to John. And that always makes me smile when I say it, the gospel according to John, because John doesn't write this as if he's writing a classic biography. Here's the the birth of the person, here's how his life went, and so on and so forth. John, more than anything, jumps all over the place. He's basically saying, here, let me present to you Jesus, God in the flesh, the Messiah. He's the gospel. Here's the good news, and here's why I'm presenting to to you. And again, remember, always at the end of the book, John chapter 20, 30 to 31, right? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. 
And these things are not written in this book, John says. But these, what I have written, these 13 verses you've had read in John 7, John would say, I've written this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's not just a man. He's the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you, you may have life in His name. Now, if you remember about how this gospel goes... All right, John the Apostle starts in John chapter 1 and he gives you this 18 verse introduction. And he basically gives you all of the high points of what he planned to unpack in his gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus is light. Jesus is life. Jesus has come to save. He's come to give glory to the Father and he will receive glory from the Father and he's offering up himself. And we're told in those first 18 verses, most will reject That tragic verse, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But we're told by the end of those 18 verses that in the end, God's plan, his purpose, and his provision prevails. And next, in the rest of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 6, you have this section, really it's kind of a cross between Jesus being popular and Jesus being not popular. And this is what you have. You have conversations. You have baptisms. You have declarations. You've got disciples being chosen. And remember, in John chapters 1 to 6, five of the seven amazing signs that John has picked out happened in those first six chapters. There's only two signs left. Other healings, amazing salvation stories like the Samaritan woman are there, deliverances and hope. But when you come to the end of John chapter 6, Conversation has turned to confrontation. Seeking has turned to desertion. Where once the popular culture wanted Jesus to be king at the end of 5 into chapter 6, now they walked away and thought Jesus was crazy. And you see, that's really the funny thing about Jesus. The older I get, the more I study the Word of God, the more I do life, I find that Jesus, the Bible, and the Gospel is all too often we want to be the ones who set the agenda. We want to be the ones who define the terms. We make the assumptions about what Jesus was talking about. And to be honest, even as I studied again this week and I saw this family dynamic, these brothers talking, I could see myself and I could see the church around me and many of my friends and fellow pastors, we have to fight this desire to cherry pick the Bible. To go to the Bible and go, ooh, I like this. Ooh, I like that. But ooh, none of that, please. Don't let's not talk about that. Let's not read that. Let's let's just pass over that. I read this past week about a local pastor who talked about in an article in the news about Jesus' desire to converse with people. That Jesus was a person who just had conversations. That he just listened and related to people. And while that is true, that is not the whole truth. Because if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... They're filled with large sections of Jesus talking, preaching, teaching, and conversing in a very one-way dialogue. He's doing the talking. Does Jesus care and love and relate to people? Yes. He loves you. He cares for you. He relates to you. But Jesus also loved people so much, He told people what their issues were. He told them who God is. He told them what they truly needed to be transformed and to have a new life. And most of the time, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the response, cynical, confused, or curious. Those are the responses you see. 
And that's where chapter 7 takes us. In the very first verse, this is not a popular way to start this out. When you read the very last of chapter 7, verse 1, what does John tell us? He says, the Jews wanted to kill him. That's how popular he was. They wanted to kill him. But in those first 13 verses of John 7, you and I are going to see something that I think many of us, if not every one of us here can relate to, and that's family tension. Family tension. You'll see a Savior in action. You'll see a crowd in wonder. All the while, there's this boiling fear, this expectation that something bad is about to happen. And yet, you'll always see Jesus aware of something. And this is a term I hope you'll hang on to as we go through all of chapter 7 and chapter 8. Here's the term I want you to hang on to. Jesus is always aware of this, divine timing. Divine timing. Timing is everything. And as Steve read this passage, there's a few things you need to understand. Because again, your Bible, you take it and you tend to read it and you go, okay, that's chapter 6, now I read chapter 7. But I want you to get a feel for what's happened. From chapter 6, verse 71, to chapter 7, verse 1, six months has gone by. A half a year has transpired since you go from verse 71 to verse 1. And this is the thing that you need to realize because John triggers time by festivals. In John chapter 6, it was the Passover. In John chapter 7, it's the Feast of Tabernacle or Booths. That came six months later. And Jesus hasn't been back to Jerusalem since John chapter 5. And the Sabbath, remember when he healed that paralyzed man of 38 years? And that was one of the great signs where Jesus displayed power over religious superstition. But he had healed on the Sabbath. And that didn't sit well with the religious leaders and the establishment. And so John just ignores an entire section of Jesus' public ministry with the disciples that Matthew and Mark and Luke tell you all about and just goes right to the Feast of Booths. Six months later, it's at hand, and in the coming weeks, I'm going to explain that celebration more because the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was actually the favorite feast of the Jewish people. And that's why all of his brothers are going up to Jerusalem. And it's important for you to understand this festival so you can understand what Jesus is going to say later in John 7 and in the chapter 8. But I want you today to just feel the dynamics of family. The tension. That Jesus is not only feeling the family tension, but is causing it. He's the cause of this tension. The next section of John's gospel is the biggest section, starting in chapter 7 and moving on to chapter, the end of chapter 12. And you're actually going to, commentators call it, the section of conflict, the section of oppression. And what a better way to talk about conflict or sometimes what feels like oppression than right at home. You see, John and Jesus will experience rejection and conflict in the one place you might have expected them to have safety and acceptance. And yet all too often, we know the power of words, don't we? Especially when it comes to family. We know the power of words, the fierceness of emotions that are displayed inside our families, right? I mean, the reality is I have said things to my mom and dad that I don't think I have ever said to any other human being. I have seen things in my own family with my own children, things that have been said and done, ways that we relate to other that honestly I am so glad happen inside the four walls of my home that nobody else gets to see. It's the family dynamic. And every one of you here has it, don't you? 
You all have those family dynamics. You've all experienced it. Those messy situations, those happy times, those awkward moments, those times when there was tension. You see, Jesus the Savior is going to once again give us a glorious example of His perfection, His love, and His patience. John 7, 1-13 tells us about His ability to tenderly speak love into the lives of those He might have been the most impatient with, family. And yet, here He is, patient once again. And you'll always notice that the answer will always be Jesus, and He will always offer them the same thing He offers you and me, Himself and His gospel. So number one this morning, let me just take you through the passage here in verses 1 to 5. You see a family's cynicism. A family's cynicism. Notice with me a few things that John tells us about right in these verses. Right off in verse 1, we're told that Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go up into Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so for the last six months, Jesus has been doing wonderful things, miracles, having conversations, signs, spending time with his disciples. And he's been doing that right there. And these were the circumstances. He avoided Judea. He avoided Jerusalem. That's where the religious establishment. And any time in the book of John that he uses the words the Jews, what he means is religious leaders. So he means the religious leaders, they wanted him dead. And you'll notice that Jesus was staying in Galilee. Now, don't think for a second that Jesus is trying to avoid trouble, lest you fall into the very trap the brothers fell into, because that's what they accuse him of. They go to him and say, you're trying to avoid what should be you facing head on. And I love this because John Calvin says, although Christ avoided dangers, he did not turn a hair's breadth from the course of his duty. So remember, I started with divine timing. And I want you to hang on to that term because John the Apostle is making his case for you and I. He wants us to see how bound and driven Jesus was to divine timing. But he wants you also to see something else about it because divine timing is what's most beneficial for you. God's timing. But now we're about to see Jesus actively deal in real time what he said and talked about back in John 4, 44. Remember back in John 44, he said, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, let alone with his own family. So John's going to pull the curtain back. He's going to open the door and allow us to take a sneak peek into an open window and hear how the family is doing. And I want you to notice three things about the brother's challenge. Notice, number one, the words of the attack. Notice that in verses 3, 4, and 5. The words of attack, they challenge Jesus and belittle him. Notice what it says in verse 3. Now they say to him, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. And I don't know about you, but it's almost like his brothers treat him like Joseph's brothers treated him. Do you remember when Joseph was coming with the thing and, and his brothers say, here comes the dreamer. Here come, and you can feel the thickness and the sarcasm of these brothers. Hey, big shot, big brother, if you're the Messiah, why don't you go up to Jerusalem? Stop doing this chicken and, or cat and mouse thing. Stop hiding out here in Galilee. Go up to Judea and show yourself. And so they challenge him, and they almost belittle him. They challenge Jesus with how to act. You should leave here. You should go to Judea. Let those followers of yours see what you can really do. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I can hear the mockery. 
I can hear the fake flattery to his abilities. You see, they know what happened six months ago. They know that they weren't from the crowds that were once following him and were going to take him by force and make him king. Now they've all left and there's only him and the 12 and a handful of other people, mostly women, that are now left with Jesus. And so they're almost saying, hey, go back up. That's where all your disciples are, right? That's where everybody is. And they know everyone has stopped following. They know there's just a little band left. But notice next the form of the attack. Because they challenge who he claims to be. Notice in verse 4, they wanted proof. They wanted proof from him. Notice what they said next. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Show yourself. Do these things publicly. They wanted proof. Once they mocked who Jesus was, and now they said, show yourself. Do more stuff. It's almost like they were clapping, dance, monkey, dance, as only brothers can do. They wanted Jesus to act according to their terms. Now, does that sound familiar? That's all of John chapter 6. A whole crowd, show us a sign. Do this, don't do that, do this. His brothers are acting just the same way. They not only wanted Jesus to act when they said, they wanted him to act in the way they wanted him to act. They wanted him to go to Jerusalem and push that political agenda that Jesus' brothers might have had. Hey, brother, go free us from this tyranny. Again, like Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the paralyzed man, the nobleman, what they thought their greatest need was and what Jesus knew their greatest need was were completely different things. And friends, that's true in our lives. But then notice, lastly, the mode of the attack. The motive of their attack. They simply didn't believe. John gives you that cursor in verse 5. His brother said this because they didn't believe in him. And it says, believe in him. Notice again in verse 4. If you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, if you're the great deliverer, go show yourself. Again, I go back to Joseph over and over again. These brothers likely thought Jesus was a dreamer as well. Full of himself. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now again, it's very important, and it's been the burden of my life here at our church to help you understand the difference than knowing about Jesus, believing about Jesus versus believing in Jesus. Because it's not like the Jesus brothers didn't believe he existed. That wasn't the struggle. They were talking to him. It's not that they didn't believe he was even capable of stuff. They've been around. They've seen the stuff that he did. It's that they did not believe in him. It's that they, what he said about himself and what he said they must do. And don't miss this. It's truly missing the link of so many today. I love folks, but it's true of many of us here today. You believe about Jesus. You believe he did stuff, that he existed. You even like some or most of what he didn't stands for, but to truly trust him with your life to trust Jesus with all the people or circumstances in your life, to fight the urge to tell Jesus how to act, what he should do, to superimpose your will on him. And friends, this is what we must fight. But as you've seen, right, unlike the crowds, the Jews, the disciples, Jesus' family, those brothers, they knew how to push his buttons. 
They get right in his face. They, this is the most personal. This is, no one has dared tell Jesus in these imperatives, listen, if you're this, go do this. Show yourself here. No one runs his mouth and then doesn't go up there. Up the, these guys make it personal on a level that only family can do it. I don't know about you, but I have a, a cousin who lives in the city, and I love him dearly. He's the closest cousin I have to age. But at this point in life right now, he's still very cynical to the gospel. And if I go over to Mount Pearl and I go to his house to this day, when I open the door, the first thing he yells out, all right, Reverend, put your collar on the door with your coat. Don't bring the collar into the house with you. And he yells that, and he he does that in a way that nobody else does because he's family. He knows me. He knows me as this little cousin of his that had to follow him around because he was really way bigger than me. But I want you to notice, secondly, a Savior's reply. Notice how Jesus responds to these brothers and their cynicism. He answers his half-brothers the same way he answered everyone else, with compassion, with patience, with love. But are you ready for it? With truth. With truth. Look at it. Basically, you can break down verses 6 and 7 and 8 with three expressions that Jesus does. First of all, he says, my timing is not your timing. Notice what he says in verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. He starts out by saying, my timing is not your timing. That's the first thing he says to them. He says it simply, yet firmly. He basically says, brothers, I love you, but your taunts and your questions, your doubts, your cynicism, none of these things will dictate my actions or God's plan. Remember, Paul would later say in Ephesians that before the foundations of the world, God had a plan. God had chosen and decreed. Before God ever said, let there be light, the Trinity knew and had already planned out the rest of human history. Yes, friends, that's how amazing, how big, how powerful, how majestic is our God. And that's why Paul bursts into praise at the end of Romans 11 with these words, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has been a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Jesus says to his brothers, my timing is not your timing. My timing is not your timing. Remember, he had to tell that to his mother. Remember in his very first miracle in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, he looks at his mother and he says, my hour has not arrived yet, mom. She misunderstood Now he's telling his brothers that his time has not yet come. That wasn't avoidance, it was submission. Do you remember Satan back in Matthew chapter 4 and his temptations, trying to get Jesus to turn stones into bread and to throw himself off the temple and then bow down to me and I'll give you? And what does Jesus say every day? No, no, your ways are not God's ways. I obey the word of the Lord. Get behind me, Satan. A lack of understanding, these brothers' lack of faith. Jesus wasn't always given only to the plan of the Trinity. But Jesus says something else here that often we glance over. He goes, my time is not yet. Your time is always here. Now you need to understand in all 13 verses of this passage, that's actually the most judgmental thing Jesus could say and yet the most compassionate thing that Jesus could say. 
I want you to take notice. It's judgment in that Jesus is telling them, like Joseph's brothers, you are actually going to be a part of those who will lead to my death and kill me. You're actually part of the grand narrative that will fulfill the will of my Father. Right now in the presence, you are fulfilling the why of why I had to come and the need for me to die. But the compassionate part of this is that Jesus is telling them, I will suffer and die for them, for you and me. See, when you look at this verse now, Romans 5, 8 should really mean something where Paul says, but God loved us so much and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He looks right at his brothers and says, you know what, guys? My time isn't here. Your, your time is. You're, you're fulfilling what you need to fulfill. You're doing what you're supposed to do. But because of that, I will, at one point, fulfill what I'm here to do. And that will be for your benefit. I love the way he does this. But notice, secondly, he says, you were of the world, but I'm here to save it in love and truth. Notice what he says next. Look at the verses. He says, the world, in verse 7, cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's the second statement he makes to his brothers. You are of the world. I'm not of the world, but I'm here to save it in love and truth. And the funny thing about John is here, the world, those, that expression, the world, it's the first time in John's gospel where he uses that term to describe not Jesus' love. Like in John 3.16 and John 3.17, John 4.42, John 6.33. But now the world is actually the enemy of Jesus. Now catch this. In other words, the world that Jesus loves is the enemy of Jesus. Now let that sink in. The world that Jesus loves is the enemy of Jesus. And folks, that's you and me. we got to put ourselves right in that. But look at the rest of the verse. Jesus separates himself from his own brothers. He says, look, the world won't hate you, but it'll hate me. Why? Because I've come to testify that its works are evil. Again, in the late 1800s, that Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, he summarized the struggle of the first century that the brothers of Jesus had he summarizes the 19th century that his world was having, and I think he summarizes the 21st century world that the trouble they have with Jesus is this. He says, It was not so much the high doctrines which he, Jesus, preached as the high standards of practice which he proclaimed which gave offense. It was not even his claim to be received to be received the Messiah which men dislike so much as his witness against the wickedness of their lives. In short, he says, they could have tolerated his opinions if he would only have spared their sins. That is an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. See, Jesus' words here are actually loving his brothers. When I separate from you, I can do what I've come to do, save you. And notice in verse 8, the last statement, he goes, you go publicly according to your will, I'll go privately and obey God's plan. He says there in verse 8, notice what he says, you go up to the feast, I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And then after this, he remained in Galilee. And then in verse 10, it says he went up privately. Again, that's not Jesus going and being sneaky. And I need you to realize Jesus actually uses imperative language now. He turns the table on his brothers, where his brothers were once saying, you should do this and you should do that. Then the oldest brother looks at them and says, you go. You go up to Jerusalem. I'm not going to do it. And he said, and this is not a trick or a lie. 
It's a direct answer to their challenge. No, I will not go up publicly and make a spectacle of myself just to make you all trust me. And again, that should sound familiar. That's Satan's temptation. Turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself off the side of the temple and let angels rescue you and wow the people with your power. And if you'll just bow down and worship me, then I'll give you everything you want, all people. And Jesus says, no, 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 you go do what you have to do. As you'll see in the weeks to come, Jesus will go up privately. Jesus will do the will of his Father in heaven. Jesus will eventually suffer and die. But Jesus will offer salvation to his brothers. And folks, there's a happy ending to this event. The question is, will there be a happy ending for you? And then finally, John brings us up to Jerusalem as we see finally a crowd's curiosity and confusion. And that's what you have in verses 10, 11, and 12, and 13. And reading these words should sound very familiar to us all, whether it's the ancient discussion or a modern reality. Because you see it, some people are curious, some people are confused, some like him, some don't like him. There's the curious group. Jesus seems like a good guy. There's that confused group. No, he's evil, he's stirring up trouble, he's making things bad. And then, of course, there's the Jews. That's hidden underneath all of this, that, that religious group with all the others are trying to avoid. They didn't want to get talk, caught talking publicly about Jesus. Because actually, this is fulfilling what an old man said 30 years earlier. Put all the pieces together. You remember that old fella at the temple named Simeon the prophet? When Matthew, or sorry, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus and they're going to dedicate Jesus, and Simeon the prophet holds him. And you remember what he says in Luke 24, 34? This child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which be spoken against, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You see, in these diversities of opinion, the cynicism of his brothers, the curiosity of some, the confusion of others, Jesus is fulfilling God's plan. And you'll also learn here that the public popularity doesn't mean you actually get it. And you'll see this borne out more and more as this chapter unfolds. William Barclay puts it so well, when a man's ideals clash with those of Christ, either he will submit or he'll seek to destroy Christ. Those are your only two options. And so unbelief always ultimately leads to rejection, and rejection will ultimately rise to at any cost. So is Jesus a good guy? Is Jesus not a good guy? Your only other option is, then let's just do away with Jesus. Let's not have this confusion. Let's not have this curiosity. And if you want to see this borne out, did you see this article this in the last couple of weeks from GQ magazine? This fascinated me. I can't believe they did it. GQ Magazine, which is supposed to be a magazine about gentlemen, just put out an article which said the Bible is one of the most overrated books of history. Yet even in the mess of their view, I find both tragedy and challenge. Listen to this. This is one of the quotes from the article. The good book is ranked number 12 on the magazine's list of 21 books you don't have to read before you die. Among the other books on the list are Huckleberry Finn, Lonesome Dove, and The Catcher in the Rye. Some are racist, some are sexist, but most are just really, really boring, the editors wrote. We've been told all our lives that we can only call ourselves well-read once we've read the great books. We tried. Now, the article goes on to say something that, while true of the culture, is also something we've got to think through as professing Christians, because here's what they said. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. 
Ouch. They say, those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, which means given to excessive moralizing, foolish, and even at times well-intentioned. That's the world's view of the Bible. That's what we are now up against. Welcome to the 21st century. Welcome to John chapter 7 in 2018. This is what we have. And that's why verse 13 is becoming more and more reality to all of us. Don't talk about Jesus publicly. Just this past week, a U.S. teacher was suspended because she wore a t-shirt saying that she loved Jesus. These are the things we deal with. I myself have been stared at for wearing my Love the Church t-shirt. I got a couple of really good views at Costco just yesterday with doing that. And I had the funniest incident yesterday. I did a first. I'm 46 years old, had a first. I went to Robin Hood Bay for the first time. Paul Winger took me to Robin Hood Bay, and I got to just exercise my testosterone by throwing a bunch of garbage out into dumpsters, and it was cool. And then he took me over where all the metal is and that big thing with the claw that picks up all the steel stuff and crushes it. And I was just like I was eight years old again. I was fascinated by all this stuff. And while we're sitting there, Paul has been there many times, and he's like an expert. Guys were pulling up and didn't know where to pull up, so Paul was directing traffic, and I was just sat there literally mouth open, just staring at everything. There was heavy engine diesel stuff everywhere, and I was just fascinated. And this guy kept looking, and he came over, and he had the thickest Newfoundland accent. And we got talking, and of course, he's dropping his, his colorful language that he can drop. And finally, as we're chatting, he goes, what do you do there, buddy? And I said, I'm a pastor. What? Like a priest? And I said, well, maybe from your background, that's probably... He said, no, no, you're a preacher. And then I had to laugh. His very next statement, don't try to convert me. Don't try to convert me. And I, had to draw, I, I laughed and I said, listen, man, I'm not going to try and convert you because Jesus does that. But it's just amazing to me how the world reacts. And so what are we supposed to take from this? How do you take these 13 verses and bring them into your 21st century life? As I look out at most of you and assume that most of you are professing Christians, but let me dare ask, are you the seeking cynic? Are you like Jesus' brothers? Demanding proof, seeking a sign, acting as if you're the authority on the authenticity of Jesus. As if it's up to you to decide if Jesus is really real. Are you the curious, attracted to Jesus by His miracles? You want to believe He's a good guy? Yet you two are still needing or wanting Jesus to bow down to your standards. Are you the confused? Jesus is not a good person. Like the GQ magazine, Jesus is confusing and contradictory. He might do some things good, but then he opens his mouth and says stuff that we don't like or we agree with. Or far worse this morning, are you the one rejecting? I don't want you to miss the most amazing thing about this passage. These are Jesus' brothers. They're his family. They've known him their whole lives. They've heard the story of his birth. They've watched him grow up. They were likely, many of them were likely there when he was 12 years old and went missing for days only to be found at the temple where he was confounding the smartest people in all of religious Israel. They heard or saw his baptism when God himself spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They were likely at the same wedding with Jesus where he turned water into wine. 
They were all there for the man lowered through the roof. Remember when these guys lowered him, cut a hole in the roof and lowered him down? Mary and the brothers are all there. They've seen these things. They've had access to him. They've heard him and watched him, conversed with him. They had more of Jesus than the disciples did at this point. But they don't know him. At this point, they know about him, but they don't believe in him. Again, J.C. Ryle puts it so aptly. He says, Let them observe that seeing Jesus' miracles and hearing Christ's teachings and living in Christ's own company were not enough to make men believers. The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. And that I challenge as a pastor's kid who grew up in church. When I look at it, and our church is so young, and I know that so many of you are grandchildren, and you've been brought into church, you've been born into church Don't ever think that just because you know all the answers, it makes you a Christian. you got to believe in Him. you got to trust Him with your life. And yet the answer, the good news, the hope is still the same. Divine timing. Jesus says, I've come for you. I love you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We love that part, but finish and stare at the words of the rest in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Which leads me to our final option, and then I'm done. Are you the believing? Are you the believing? The one who will come to Jesus seeking him, but according to what Jesus says. And for those of you here this morning that are Christians, I need you to realize like what Jesus says to his own brothers, we will all experience these things. We will experience a certain level of acceptance, but we will often feel rejection and opposition because holy living exposes evil things. We are called not to be liked, but to be loving. We're called not to be accepted, but to offer, listen to me now, life changing acceptance it's not just acceptance it's life changing acceptance and don't cower away from that don't draw back from doing what is right lovingly saying what is right lovingly and yet don't think for one second that you and i will lead a christ-like life and not be hated by the world again what we think of christ ourselves This is one of the questions which we have to deal with. Let us never be ashamed to be of that little number who believe on Him, hear His voice, follow Him, and confess Him before men. While others waste their time in vain, jangling an unprofitable controversy, let us take up the cross and give all diligence to make our calling and election sure. The children of this world will hate us as it hated our Master because our religion is a standing witness against them, but the last day will show that we chose wisely, lost nothing, and gained a crown of glory that fades not away. And the happy ending I told you about? Do you realize that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, every one of his brothers turned to him as Savior? The one you probably know the most about is a guy named James. That book of James that you read about in your Bible is actually written by the half-brother of Jesus. So this brother who was at one time cynical, listen to the first verse of the epistle of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the doubting brother became the servant. The cynic becomes the truster. The lost is found. That's that life-changing acceptance. 
So church this morning, will you trust Jesus with your life? Will you trust Jesus with your circumstances, with your marriage, with your money, with your children, with your family, with your job? Will you trust Jesus with your body, with your friends, your possessions? Will you trust Jesus with your mental state? Will you trust Jesus with your past and your present and your future? Will you trust Jesus with your hurts and your failures and your abilities? Will you trust Jesus with forgiveness of your sins and your ability to trust Him so that you can forgive others? You see, you don't have to do anything to come to Jesus, but you must trust Him to come to Him. You must surrender your pride and your determination and your self-help agenda. You must simply come to Jesus, trusting Jesus, leaning on Him. Listen to this wonderful poem. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord, and He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. For Jesus shed His precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into rest. Believe in Him without delay, and you are fully blessed. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Only trust Him now, and He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Let's pray. Father God, may my friends, my family, my church family, have heard a much better sermon than I am capable of preaching. From the youngest here to the oldest, may they hear from you, God, through your word and your spirit to move and to work. Father, as a pastor of this church, I know that the men and women I look at in love have had to deal with a series of issues this past week. Decisions that have affected them profoundly. Lord, some of the words of this passage have resonated true to them. Lord, help them to internalize it for themselves, not to project it on somebody else. And Lord, for the frustrated or the angry, the bitter or the confused, the hurting or the searching. Lord, for those that are struggling with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. For those, Father, that are wondering, do I really trust in Jesus with my life, only trust Him now. And Lord, start that with me. Help me to trust You. Lord, I'll be most tempted to not trust You five minutes after this service is over. And I evaluate everything that I've done right and wrong. Help me to trust You. Father, as I face the day and the week's dilemmas and ups and downs, help me to trust You. Father, help us as a church to trust You. Help men and women in this room to trust you. Move us from our cynicism to belief, from our curiosity to belief, from our confusion to belief. Help us, if we are smoldering in our stubbornness of rejection, to be broken lovingly and tenderly by the truth of the Word of God, to trust in you and believe in you. Father, change us, I pray. Break the chains through your amazing grace. In Jesus' name and all God's people said,